an unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect dharma is rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million kalpas, having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept. I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Good morning. Good morning, Lane. I want to talk about Blanche and sewing. But just being with Tim and, and doing all this sewing, it just reminds me of so many things. And this is a chance to talk about her in a more intimate way. I've talked about her. I've reference her all the time. And I'm sure I talked about her when she died. But I don't know, it's just very close. She's close to my heart right now. You know, there's a famous story about Dungshan uh, early on going to, uh, it was at a monastery and, and his teacher was preparing a memorial feast for his teacher, and uh, asked the assembly, uh, do you think he'll be here? And Dungshan, the young, very young monk said, if he has friends here, he'll be here. So she is here. And I want to say first that I too, like uh, Tim said yesterday, uh, I was afraid of her when I first met her or saw her. I used to, I started out at a weekend retreat at Green Gulch and then I started going on Sundays and I would see her there often because she was living at Green Gulch then and she was, uh, I don't know that she had a formal role, but she was definitely a teacher there and uh, she definitely taught uh, sewing among other things. And there was just something about her aspect that was scary. And this is a very common reaction that people had. She went about purposefully, you know, she she didn't she didn't uh, smile a lot. I mean, it's it's ironic because her affect, her aspect in the sewing room was so very different. She was much less formal than she talked. She talked a lot. That was uh, one of the, I, and I didn't realize that at Gringold so much, but when I lived with her, when I lived at City Center and so on, I, then I saw it more. Silent practice was, was not easy for her. She was born in the South and her dad was uh, very active in civil rights. And he was beaten at one point. And eventually they moved back. They moved out here. Lived in, I think it was Davis. You remember? It was something, I think it was Davis. And uh, I think that he was in, the, I started to say, and if I say somebody's in the party, I mean the Communist Party. I don't know. <laughs> That's sort of my politics somewhere. I'm not, I've never been uh, interested in, in uh, being in a party, but uh, being around lefty lawyers so much, I know lots of people that either were in it or continued to be in it. 
At any rate, she and Lou were in the party for many years. And she told me once that she left because they didn't take into account greed, hate, and delusion, which makes sense from what I know people, including my brother-in-law was. My brother-in-law was a Stalinist and a wonderful man. And I just want to I keep skipping, I want to skip around. She, uh, my understanding is that May 1st used to be Labor Day and that in much of the world it's Labor Day. So I would often say that in work circle, that on May 1st when we got in work circle, I'd say, Happy Labor Day! And then she would start singing the Internationale. I miss her. She was, she was very much a teacher for me. She was what I, I think she was what they call in, in uh, Christian uh, monasteries, uh, my formation master. She was the one that taught me forms and how to do things, priestcraft and basic comportment, all kinds of things. And she would tell me to go talk to Mel before any transition, you know, when I was going to be uh, Eno, say, at City Center. So I used to go over and talk to him, and he'd say, fine. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I know there weren't things that were much question about. I needed an Eno, and I had never been Eno, and I'd been uh, acting Eno, and, and uh, had Dolan at Tassahara, and um, I'd already been Tenzo, so it really was not exactly rocket science. But she, she maintained those kinds of things, you know. So I met her, I started in March of 88, and I kept on going to Green Gulch on, on Sundays. And as I say, I was first I was afraid of her. And I don't know exactly how it changed, because I, I was thinking that it wasn't until I did a practice period there in the uh, summer of 89, but it was before that, because what I do remember is that when my, I might have been when my father died in the spring of 89, my mother died in January and my dad in May of 89. What I remember is walking in to the, what's called the Gaetan, or what I call the Gaetan, I forget what they call it nowadays, Cloud Hall, I think. Anyway, that was the entrance entryway then, and there wasn't, there wasn't that whole addition and entering on from the sides and all that. Anyway, I walked in and um, I was there to do, to dedicate morning service to him, I think. Uh, anyway, I walk in and just right into her arms and just started crying, and she held me like, like a good mother should. So I must not have been so afraid of her by then. <laughs> so somewhere in that year, things shifted. I think being around on Sundays a lot, I, I, I began to see another side of her son. And then that summer, I spent six weeks, I think, or eight weeks, something at Green Gulch. They had a summer practice period that uh, Rev. Anderson led 
that she was there and um oh somewhere in there she had a heart attack but i think it was a little later at any rate what i remember of that um, practice period one of the things is being being with her because you you just become pushed together and you eat um i don't know what i think we ate breakfast silently or yogi in the dining room i don't know anyway you know just around and you're eating together and, and whatever um then um, she was uh, doing some uh, special sewing and we were invited to come and learn how and to sew on the it was the first uh, i don't think it was lying so i don't think it was a nine job but i'm not clear about it because i just i just wanted i wanted to be around her and I, it just seemed like fun because i you know i grew up sewing so therefore i know how and it was not that hard for me to learn the stitch so we were invited to sew on this it's a sort of a seafoam green uh okay so that was meant to be like a ceremonial okay so for generic use by the abbots which were at that point um, Rev and Bell and they hadn't yet really come to grips with their plan to um, rotate abbots up they changed and put that in the bylaws uh, after uh, Rev had his difficulties uh, with the, the, the waving a gun around and all. But he was still, um, he was co-abbot with Mel. So she thought, I, I think it was probably her idea, because that's the kind of thing she would think about. But there should be some kind of uh, fancier uh, okesa. This, this over robe is an okesa, right? This big Buddha's robe is the okesa, and there should be one for the abbots. And so we sewed one. And I don't think it was lined. I think I remember, because it makes it so much more complicated. And I spent a lot of time in the library with her. Um, then the library, now it's a, a, like an office and a little store. It's called the Welcome Center. Anyway, so and then it was just wonderful. And, and uh, Angie Boisemane was also there as Angie was working on her brown robe. And Angie had had a recurrence of breast cancer and she thought that she didn't have too much longer to live. And this was in the summer of 89. And Angie is still very much among us. That was nice. So nice. At any rate, it was very sweet to be just sitting in, and mostly listening to them talking, and they're just chatting and sewing. And, and uh, I was working on the green robe, and, and, and Blanche was um, madly pinning and preparing pieces for Angie to sew, because Angie wanted to get it done in about a week. And I guess, I, I don't know, Angie's teacher, Coben, could be, he was often very vague 
And so he sort of told her that she should sew a brown robe. But I didn't exactly say to mark the when, but there was a feeling of some urgency because of her uh, illness. She said once, I'm, I'm digressing about Angie, but she said that uh, she felt like um, after she survived the second uh, cancer, she felt like from then on everything was, it was all gravy. <laughs> Because she was still still alive and she was supposed to be dead. At any rate, it was very sweet in the relationship between the two of them. They really liked and respected one another. And I was just this little binky. I wasn't that much younger than they, but still felt like a little binky on the wall. And I loved sewing. Just the, the rhythm of it and the feel of it. And the fact that it was is an act of devotion. And one of the things Blanche was very much about was devotion practice. And I think, I know, in my anyway, she taught it by osmosis, kind of. You know, she did, she talked about it some, but she did it the way she talked about Buddha's robe. I mean, for her, it's definitely Buddha's robe, too, and she talked about that. And you felt it with her, and, you, and she felt it from Joshin son spoke about that. But you, Tim talked yesterday about her um, completing the uh, boxes and cases and the, the things that had been kind of abandoned that Joshin-san was staying up late to finish. That deeply impressed Blanche. For Joshin-san, this was Buddha's robe, and you don't leave Buddha's robe. And Blanche got it. And she she learned that, I think, from Joshin-san more than Yoshi's uh, Yoshi. I don't know. At any rate, that taught 
sewing, but I sewed my rock suit with her, starting, uh, I guess, what was it? I guess it was 90. I know I received Jukai that spring, and I started sewing with Blanche at Lily, at, uh, um, at City Center. She was at City Center, but she and Lily moved into City Center by then. And um, she had sewing classes in the old sewing room, which was now, I think, offices or something. Um, that's the one. It was a bigger place on the right with a higher ceiling, regular ceilings and a bathroom. I wound up living there and that moved the sewing room to where it was for a long time. With the, you could hit your head on the ceiling in places you couldn't stand up. And I, they wanted me to get there. I'm talking to Chuck because he knows what I'm uh, And I walked in. They only let me come with a dog because they desperately needed a tinsel. That's how things happen in the bureaucracy. <laughs> they wouldn't let me come. That's so why I went to Green Gulch from Tassar because they didn't want me. They didn't want my dog. And then they desperately needed a director, which means that meant that Vicky needed to be director. So then they desperately needed a Tenzo. And so they got, got me, they had me move from Green Gulch, which did let me come with the dog, happily. So all of a sudden they could, they could find a way. <laughs> and they wanted me to live in a place where the sewing room was for many years. And I walked in and I said, I, I don't think I could do this because it's claustrophobic. You know, if you're in there and you're you're busy and also a lot of times you're you're um, sitting at a low table when it's fine. But to live in there, I just my I just I could do it. And so they decided that they could have me live on the other side, which had normal ceilings and also had a bathroom. I mean it was a more sensible place for somebody to live. I mean to have to go all the way. Um, you know, outside, down some stairs, across the courtyard, in a locked door, up some other stairs, or down some other stairs, just to be able to use the toilet. <laughs> it's a little much. Anyhow, I wound up in there. And I started, anyway, I started sewing there on my rock suit, and somewhere in there she had a heart attack. She was supposed to leave the spring, I think this is right, the spring, for winter 90 practice period at Tassajara. And then she had a heart attack. And Jerome led it, which must have been very interesting. And that's a story for another time. But at any rate, I spent a lot of time with her because she was recuperating and staying at her mother's house in uh, Berkeley. And so I would go and visit, and um, it was really nice. It was, she was in bed, I think, a lot of the time. And if she told me the story of her life, which was interesting, and talked about her family, it was, she went to Tassajara relatively soon after she started practicing. And she felt later that she had abandoned her kids, especially her youngest. Her older ones were a better condition, but her youngest, Mitzi, uh, was, I think, in high school. And, and 
told her later she could see it coming and she made her own plans to go in with some sort of family friends and announce that to her parents. But um, according to Blanche, Mitzi always felt it. I, I, I know Mitzi, I like her, I like her a lot actually, but, um, but I've never asked her about that. But she, anyway, she did go to Wimbledon. We got closer then. I mean, I do consider her, I did consider her a friend and also a teacher. And she was hard on me. I don't know if she was hard on you. I didn't, you, you didn't see her. I, well, maybe you did. I don't know if you did. Though, some. She just didn't let me get away with anything. You know? so, so I would be complaining about somebody and my finger would be like this and she would not, she didn't figure it, but she would just wrench it around <laughs> to this one over and over. And without getting too analytical, I think I think she was particularly hard on me because she identified with me in some way. And I wasn't her student in the sense of that uh, that uh, her disciples were. I don't know. Anyway, I, I think I've never exactly compared notes, but from what, you know, you listen to what people say, they don't go telling you everything they said in Doksan, but they, they talk about it or quote the teacher or something, and I just had a feeling that she was smarter. And I appreciate it mostly, mostly. I could have done with a few compliments or soft words along the way. The only thing, I, I, you've heard me say this, and now I'm sort of jumping around, but it was, I mean, to me, it was, it was funny and it was also a little bit irritating and it could hurt a little bit maybe. Every time, you know, I'd be sewing on a Roxu, I was sewing on a Kesa or whatever, and she'd, um, she'd see my stitches and she'd say, oh, these are really nice stitches. And she'd say it with surprise every time. <laughs> <laughs> could you, you, like, remember one time you... Mary, Mary can make nice stitches. Maybe they're not so strong, but they're they're pretty. <laughs> so it was, you know, it was a little bit backhanded, you know, the the, the surprise. But I'll I'll take it. In the fall of ninety, I entered Kasahara, and I remember um, talking with her about it <laughs> and saying, "Like, you have any uh, tips for getting through the Tangario? You know, the five days that you just." sit with no, no nothing except sitting and eating and you get a short break after each meal and that's it. You can move at will and you can use the bathroom. You know, let me tell you, I think well, most of us, at least for me, when I, I, I didn't go, you could always sort of squeeze something out, but I didn't do that. I just went when I really needed to. But I walk really slowly. <laughs> and I think that's not uncommon. At any rate, I asked her if she had any uh, advice and so on, and she said, and I quote, uh, along with the tone as best I can, she said, just get through it, honey. <laughs> so as I did it, I, that's what I thought, just get through it. So um, that uh, practice period in the fall of ninety, she was she was there a lot. She she was uh, almost co-leading it with Mel, 
and he was in and out. His son Daniel was about ten or twelve then, and so he felt like, and he was also, you know, the abbot of the Berkeley Zen Center, and so he he was just he would he would go for a couple of weeks and spend some time in Berkeley and maybe city center and uh, spend some time with his family. And she, I think she was just, she was there a lot. I don't know if she was there the whole time. She was certainly there when he was gone. And it was hard for me. I, I, had, I had vowed and intended to stay through the interim so that I did the fall practice period and I was not going to leave in the two, three weeks that Tassahara was kind of closed down and then, you know, do the, the uh, winter practice period in 91. But at that time, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, was, uh, was dying. And it was clear that she was going to die, um, you know, maybe January, certainly not going to live until, until um, the following May. So I was debating about leaving because I felt gone. I'd, I'd spent, a, before I left, I'd spent a lot of time with her because she, she had ovarian cancer back in the time when that was almost, it was definitely a uh, death sentence. And it had recurred and there was not much question that she was, um, she was dying in the next six months or so. So I'd been spending a lot of time with her before I left. And, uh, and I just remember Blanche just listened to me. I mean, she had been, I'm sure, happy with my decision to not leave. Because that was like hardcore. But I didn't, I never, nobody pressured me to do that. And it was so some people don't leave. And you tell me that. I want to be one of those people, uh, for some good reasons and some really lousy reasons. At any rate, I just remember uh, lying on her bed, because rooms don't have couches. Tasa rooms don't even the fanciest rooms. And anyway, and just talking. And she just listened. She just listened. And uh, it was this sort of comforting open ear. And she didn't try to sway me one way or the other. She just supported me. And I finally decided to go. And she was completely supportive of that. And I'm glad I went because I wasn't able to say goodbye because it was clear that she wasn't going to be around much longer. But that that presence, you know, I said there weren't very many compliments, which is true, but but there just there was that um, warm welcoming ear. Her chief disciple, Kathleen Williams, once said that she thought Blanche wasn't, you know, she wasn't usually she wasn't very kind of warm grandmotherly because she had four kids. And she didn't want any more. <laughs> and I think that's part of it. Uh, I also know that I had big transference and projection, you know. I wanted, I wanted a good mommy and a warm, loving mommy, because my mommy had some 
difficulties and wasn't really able to be that uh, warm. And uh, so I could get myself in, into a place uh, of wanting uh, something from lunch that was not on offer and not being and then not being able to see what was and then I'd have to you know the first time I worked it through was I really had to work out of it but after that I I usually see it pretty soon sometimes with the help of my analysts you know, and I take back my projections and then I find out oh she is she is a warm presence in my life she's just not a uh, warm weighted blanket all the time as she, there's no reason why she should have been. We did a 92, in the spring of 92, we did a, uh, in the, into the summer, I guess, we did, she led a practice period at Green Cell Inn, um, Suzuki Roshi's, our home temple in Japan, and Hoitsu, his son Hoitsu Roshi was there, and we got to know him. He's, to me, he's Hojo-san, which is how you uh, informally uh, speak of the abbot and uh, hojo is, is a is a reference to the room as a ten tatami room i mean it sounds like dharma row but i'm not sure because there's lots of um whatever you call those with you know different words sound the same in japan japanese so i don't know and my name is zenki and it does not mean the same rev's name is zenki and he translates it often as total dynamic working or the whole works that kind of thing. But my name is Enki, um, but it's a different uh, key, and uh, it means joy. And it's different from Blanche was then K-E-I, and it, it also means total joy, but she once asked uh, Dr. Abe, a Japanese scholar that used to come here a lot, um, she once asked him, about her name and what you know what did that mean and he says it's the the zen is total so it's different from zazen at any rate um it means total or complete anyway he said that the k means the the kind of the kind of joy you would feel on the birthday of the emperor <laughs> when i never let her forget it <laughs> Because mine, I think, is just joy. Somebody once said to me, so yours is a kind of joy, it's like sex and chocolate? I said, yes. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to ask anybody from Japan what kind of joy it is. <laughs> I don't want to know. But anyway, it's not the kind of joy you feel on the birthday of the emperor. <laughs> oh, oy, oy. So I don't know. So she, well, that, that was she, it was a wonderful presence of that practice period. And then, um, I don't remember when it was, it must have been, she was there. Oh, she led a practice period. She was there a lot in the um, spring, I know. It's actually the winter. I mean, that practice period starts in January and ends uh, at the end of April, kind of. The end of March. So I call that a winter practice period. But anyway, she was there a lot. And the baths were being renovated. So we didn't have a bath. 
and we had hot tubs in, uh, in uh, Garden 2 on both, it was divided. And so there's a men's and a women's hot tub. But they didn't get very hot. And she liked her water really, really hot in, in the hot tub. And so she worked out a deal with the, the, the workers. They had down by where the hot springs come into the creek. They had they had a big uh, like a rubbermaid horse trough. It must have been at least eight feet in diameter. What not quite as wide as this archway, which I think is ten feet from the inner part of the archway in front of me. So say it was eight feet wide. Six. It was big. Anyway, so what you did was you had you could direct the hot water in, and then you and then you take cold water out of the creek and add it to taste. And in the process, of course, you get a little sand in the bottom. But you could have it as hot as you wanted. And so she worked out a deal that that, that uh, she or we, because I liked it too, that that we could go and and use it during bath exercise time. And, and so I know that she and I used it, and, and Kathleen used it. Kathleen was there that practice period. I have a photograph taken by a woman named Gloria Lee from, uh, from so it's a picture of us from the back, and we're all sitting in this horse trough with hard hats on because they insisted we wear hard hats because <laughs> we were kind of in a construction area. <laughs> so there's just our shoulders. You know, but we're sitting in that bath, and uh, I have it somewhere. I gave it to her. There was something I rose to her at city center at some point. It was a birthday party kind of thing, but it was also a roast, and so I had that picture enlarged and presented <laughs> it to her. There it used to be in the room ten, leaning against the wall, but facing the wall. I mean, it didn't show anything except for shoulders and stuff. Anyway. Um, that's a wonderful memory. And so many things. I don't you I you hear me, I say, you know, when you when you you know, where you take your shoes off, where you put them on, that it, when you walk out of the shoeless area, see it as a sea of mud, and then it helps you to remember to put your shoes on. And also to take them off because you just you don't want to bring in all that mud. And when I left at the end of 99, she gave me my only compliment, which was really a wonderful compliment. It wasn't, it was backhanded, as what she said was, and I quote, why do all the good ones leave? So, oh, I guess that was a good one. But, uh, that, was, that was kind of it. And, but I mean, as I talk about this, I'm, for God's sake, Mary, when Darlene died, I was there a lot and supporting Tony and also helping with, because um, Michael, Michael transmitted her and he just wasn't that available. I guess he already had Parkinson's pretty seriously. And so he couldn't just jump in a car and drive up to uh, Gurnville. When she took a turn, or when you know, 
She died. She died at 1 a.m. So it was a definite At any rate, I was there a lot, and I, and I, did, I did get the call. Because he didn't want a lot of people around him, and he and his son were with her. But I did get the call, and I did go up there, and we did, you know, wash her body and chant the Daishinirani And I helped with it, even sort of officiating, you know, whatever. The, 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 you know, we sat with her for a day in the, in the Zendo, and then there was a cremation ceremony, and I officiated that. And, um, you know, just sort of um, a few people, not just me, but people kind of living there for a few days and with him and with her disciples. And, uh, Blanche wanted me around that way. Tony had told her about it, how comforting it was. And she wanted me there when Lou was actively dying. He was at the Zen Hospice across the street. The headquarters of the Zen Hospice was across the street. And uh, she wanted me to be there and to do the same things for her. And I, after that, right, it was, I guess she died soon after Darlene. But she, Lou died soon after Darlene. And I was exhausted and I got a really bad flu and I had a fever. You know, there's no way that I was going to be around a bunch of people. Not to mention, I don't know if I even could have done it, but it just seemed crazy. So I didn't, and I've always felt sad about that. But it's, you know, it, that's a compliment, isn't it, that she wanted me there, and that she told me how much Tony had appreciated it. And uh, I got well enough that when he was actually dying, I was there, and sat with him for a while, and then we all went downstairs, and were sitting, and, and left with just the family, and then she called me up to don't wash his body and so on. And the last thing, um, well, I just want to say throughout this, you know, the, the Kesa and Sewing and Roxas were always there, just there. And, and I was, oh, I have to, I have to tell you what, two lessons. And I know I'm way overdone. But um, you know, when I was Eno, then I had to, you know, so I was running around organizing things and so on. And I went, Sashim, Sashim, just working more. And, uh, and during Sashim's, uh, she would often, you know, there would be a lot of people there. So it wasn't like here where if you, you know, you couldn't pull out, we, we couldn't have a work period and pull out all the sewers, especially <laughs> on this Sashim. Um, but she would do that. She would pull people that were close to finishing and had a Dukai coming up or whatever. She would take them to the sewing room during work period. And they were supposed to be sewing and were supposed to be silent. And I needed to ask her some question, some, you know, question about something. So I went over there. And you, you walk in and you're on a, a lower level and then everybody is up like two, three stairs and in this big room. So the tables, tall tables, and some farther in, and a low table, and so I'm doing whatever they were doing. And I don't remember, I don't know, I don't say there were eight people in there. Yes. Anyway, I walked in the door, and there was, a, <laughs> 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 and 
So I had my shoes on. You could go a few feet in, and I and I had my shoes. So I just <laughs> I just stood there, grinning. <laughs> and at some point, she turned around and noticed me standing there, and she said, "Busted." <laughs> <laughs> Which she was, <laughs> but that she had that lightness about it. I mean, she knew that she that she you know, talked a lot, and but uh, it, it wasn't like they weren't just talking. We've been talking, but we've been doing pretty well. I think it was a big point, and most of the talking's been about sewing. But it wasn't that kind of talking. She was in her element in the sign room. She was really happy there. And Joshinson was there. At any rate, after Lou died, uh, she really um, declined. And after a while, she couldn't go down to the Zendo because it was too hard on her legs and whatever. And, and, uh, um, I don't know if there was a ramp up to the Zendro door at that point, to the outside door, but that would have been a long walk to walk down the ramp from the uh, bookstore all the way around down the corner and then back up. Uh, I know when I was director, we could not get a permit for a ramp. They asked again a couple years later, different person in the planning department and they got they needed a variance I don't know why. At any rate she used to do what Lou used to do this before he died. They sit in the uh, Buddha hall while there was a what was last time was going on downstairs. And then they'd be there when, when people came up for service. But she was obviously just doing poorly. And it got, you know, slowly declining and getting sicker. He had a, a, a bad heart. And eventually she went up in a, um, I guess you'd call it a school nursing place, not far from the city center. And I would go and visit her. And she, you know, she was, one of the things she was, especially at that point, she was just seriously depressed. And it, you couldn't, you could, you could talk to her and tell her things. It wasn't always clear how much she tracked. But you couldn't really have a, a conversation with her about about much. So I took to just massaging her feet, which made her very happy and made me feel good because I like devotion practice too, and that's certainly devoted to her. And it was something I could do, and we could be quiet. And so I get a towel and put it over my lap and get some lotion, and I would give her a foot massage, and she would just be in bliss. <laughs> And um, when she was dying, she was in the hospital, she was at Kaiser in San Francisco. I went over right before I was going to Tassajara for a lawyer's retreat the next day, actually. And um, she was not really speaking at that point. And I sat with her for quite a while. And, and I finally decided I really, really needed to leave. And, and, but. And I decided to, um, I kind of, I felt like she knew I was there. Um, I, you know, I, I announced myself, I thought I could steer and said, and said I was there or whatever, but that was about all. And then um, 
I decided to massage her feet. And I got a towel and I got some lotion and I, I sat on the bed and took her feet on my lap. And it, just as soon as I started, this huge beatific, that's a word in my reading vocabulary, I think it's a, it's a, anyway, smile on her face. She was, she was just in heaven. And so I did it for quite a while and it was really sweet and it made me, I, then I knew she must know I was there because I was, that's what I did, that had become our relationship. I hope so because, like, you know, you can't really say goodbye um, when someone is that. Uh, it, it isn't that she was unconscious, but but this is not very not really communicative. So I guess that's why it feels important to think that she knew I was there, that she knew I was telling her I left her and saying goodbye or something. Because she died while I was at Tassajara. I remember Leslie came to my room and um, I don't remember what she said, but I knew from her face and uh, sure enough, why she died. And we, you know, dedicated service to her the next morning, I guess. And, um, Daniel with McGee was my assistant and had come down with me. So we went back by way of city center where she was lying, kind of lying in state in the Rudolph. We got there in time before her body was taken away. And so we got to sit with her for a little while, which was very sweet. And they had a cremation ceremony, which was a little bit like a, an intimate funeral. And it was by invitation because they, you know, the family figured rightly, I think, if they had made it a public event, it would have just overwhelmed the uh, um, sort of uh, sanctuary room, whatever you call it, at Pacific Internment. It's not tiny, but it's not that big. And people spoke about her, and I don't really remember. It occurs to me now that I'd like to chant the Dai, but not the Dai Shindarani for her, and I would chant the Enejuku. Because another when you know that Mitzi was you know, one her one son was active in business and a Zen uh, archer, the oldest son, and uh, their older daughter was a uh, is a uh, psychiatrist, and then the younger son is somebody who just kind of struggles in the world. And they, so Mitzi is the youngest kid, and she became an exotic dancer. <laughs> and when Lynch found out, it, it, she was completely freaked out. And she went down to the Zendo, apparently she said, I wasn't there, and this is a long time, it was before my time. Anyway, she went down to the Zendo and just chanted the M.A. Juku Kanagyo over and over and over, because she just didn't know what else to do. Because her daughter was grown, we don't get to say no, and, and you know, her parents were sort of progressive. And, you know, so uh, they they actually they they got it together to go and watch a performance. <laughs> and Mitzi is no more of a she's a sought after sex educator, and so she's she is. Um, 
Jeez, I don't want to person. And one of the things Nancy said was, well, somebody in the family had to do it. They're <laughs> all so serious. She doesn't have a sense of humor. Let's let's stop and we can we can. Uh, I'm sorry about you guys online, and we can talk about her anytime you want. Just just ask. But I think we should stop. numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it.